right, thanks everyone, and good morning everybody. Glad to have you all here. My name's Chris, I'm one of the pastors, and um, so if it's your first Sunday here, welcome to our church. Uh, we, we are in Genesis right now for our sermon series, and we're nearing the end actually. We've been in it since January, so uh, I think six weeks left after today, which uh, for a almost 52-week uh, sermon series, I guess, that's hardly anything. Uh, but nearing the end, lots of good stuff to come still. Uh, we are in a, a section right now, if, if you want to turn there, uh, we are in uh, Genesis 30, 25 to 31, 55 uh, today, looking at uh, Jacob still, and uh, we'll uh, catch up speed here in just a second if you haven't been here for a little while or if you're new to the Bible. Uh, but we've been calling this section of Genesis um, a lot of things, I guess, but uh, it is a, is a very heavily symbolic section of Scripture. It's uh, historical and truthful. So uh, sometimes we kind of hear symbolism and, and truthfulness and, and histor historicity and stuff like that and see them at, at, at odds, but, but they're not. Uh, symbolism and, and historicity can, can coexist. And uh, so we've been looking at this idea, this truthful account, historical account of how God has been promising to sinners and showing grace to them. These men we call the patriarchs and their wives and families, uh, but also seeing a lot of symbolism in them as well because uh, we relate to them. Uh, they're, they're symbolic of how God works later in the Bible. And two truths help us here. I, I haven't said it this way yet, and I'll, I'll say it today. In fact, it's kind of cool that Peter and the band ended with that um, song in the set about God, uh, the world moving like mad, but God's ways being unchanging and faithful because these, these two truths help us here with the symbol, symbolism idea. One, uh, God is not partial. He always has the nations in mind, not just this family, this ancient family of uh, almost 4,000 years ago. Uh, but he's not partial. He always has the nations in mind with his saving purposes. And two, he doesn't change. So because he's not partial and he doesn't change, these become our stories as well. So what God does here, he does later. And these are human beings just like us who are distant from God, who are being pursued. So there are stories, and more so, there's stories about Christ. They're Jesus' stories uh, ahead of time. And so what he's been doing then, God really is the ultimate author, but Moses, who wrote this, is he's giving us clues about the end of the book here at the very beginning of the book. Genesis is the very beginning of the story of God, the very beginning of the story of redemption. Creation, then fall into sin, and then right away God starts making these promises that resemble the gospel ahead of time. And so we've been seeing that symbolically, and, and, but also quite straightforwardly as well, but We've been seeing this over and over repetitiously again, and again, we've been saying this, but if you don't like repetition, just try to train yourself to, because God loves it, and it's all over the scriptures. You, we can't avoid this repetitious cycle of, of promise and um, grace and mercy and God calling back sinners to, to himself. We're going to look at one theme today uh, in, in terms of that, but, but really what we're seeing is, is this uh, beautiful art of foreshadowing. Uh, we, we tend to appreciate that sometimes. We see that in literature or in movies, and we should in the Bible as well. Uh, it's beautifully, beautifully, you could say perfectly done. Uh, and if, if that's a new concept to you, just the idea, too, of seeing uh, the beginning kind of informing the end of the story, this whole way of reading Genesis. The very first sermon we gave on Genesis back in, must have been mid-January, late January, is on our website, and that'll give you more info on that. Uh, I try to recap that a little bit every week and just kind of show you by example how to do this and how the scriptures are kind of reading themselves, how the New Testament quotes these passages about these patriarchal narratives and, and creation narratives and other kinds of narratives as well and kind of read them in light of that. Uh, but we did a lot more with that too, kind of on a teaching basis back in January. Um, so 
Go ahead and listen to that if you would like, or just drop me a line. Love to buy a coffee and just uh, explain more, too, if you'd like to do that. But just to summarize where we are, we're going to focus on this uh, section right here, 31, 11 to 42. The greater section is chapter 30, 25, all the way through 31, 55. But just to summarize the first part of that, uh, Jacob is uh, Abraham's grandson. Remember, these are these uh, initial men, these patriarchs God has been promising to and calling people to a land uh, we call Canaan. Uh, Jacob's not home, though. He's not in Canaan. He went to a land called Haran, which is where his mom was from, Rebekah, to find a wife and to escape from his brother, which is another story. We'll hear more about that next week, kind of end cap to that story. But he goes there and marries Leah and then Rachel as well. Uh, the Bible's not condoning polygamy here. We talked about this last week. It's not, uh, de- it's not prescribed. It's more of a description of something that's not ideal and causes strife. Uh, but it's, it's definitely not condoned, but it does happen, and God uses that to speak something uh, into something theological uh, that pertains to the gospel. That was last week's uh, topic. And so Jacob there, that occurs, and he works for Laban, his father-in-law, for several more years. But Laban starts to take advantage of him. This is the key kind of turn of events here. Things start off pretty good. Uh, he's working for his father-in-law. They get along. They're hugging it out in the beginning, and then things shift, and they turn, and he starts to take advantage of him tricks him and cheats him out of a lot of things and keeps asking him to work more and more and more. It doesn't really let him leave. And so Jacob eventually asks to leave to go back to his homeland, the land of Canaan, where God uh, called his grandfather Abraham many years uh, before. And so just geographically here, map-wise, this is where Ur right here is where Abraham was from. He traveled uh, up kind of this more fertile area here and back down into Canaan. The land of Canaan is right here. Uh, and so his grandson Jacob then is here originally. He goes back here into this area called Haran, which is close to Ur, to find a wife. Uh, he marries Leah and Rachel, and then they have a bunch of kids, and now they want to go back because God is starting to call them back here, and they just want to leave. They're being mistreated. And so basically in the passage today, we're going to pick up with Jacob talking to his wives about all of this and about how God is starting to speak to him about all this and calling him back and starting to start starting to release him from this oppression that Laban has uh, over, over him. So calling him back to Canaan, this land of promise that uh, really is kind of where God is. He's everywhere, but ultimately there, uh, away from Laban. Let's read it, uh, 31, 11 to 42. So Jacob, again, is just picking up mid-conversation, talking to Rachel and Leah. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob... And I said, here I am. And he said, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For He has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, Whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates, and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. 
When it was told uh, Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him to the hill country of Gilead. But Jacob came to Laban in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Laban had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and a tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. And anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods what you have found of all your house. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. The God of my father and the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. All right, so let's do this. Um, Peter this morning came into my office and said, preaches itself this week, right? And I said, you're kidding, right? He said, yeah, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, a lot of stories like this in the recent past, if you've been here, uh, the Bible is a chock full of things like this that I think you can just kind of categorize as strange, maybe categorize it as familial, uh, categorize it as, uh, you know, kind of dysfunctional. We were talking about the dysfunctional aspect of family relations and, and so forth and, and all that. So I talked about that a little bit more last week, more than I will this week. Uh, but at the end of today's passage, too, we didn't read the last section, but uh, Laban does let them go, to be clear. Uh, they make a covenant, and then Laban goes home, and, and then the rest of the account is how this family makes it all the way back uh, to Canaan. So basically, to summarize it, and sometimes it's just helpful to do this, just to summarize all the weirdness and, and, and just to observe it and ask what's going on here. Basically, this is just a story of oppression and slavery and mistreatment, and then God incited escape and return. So oppression and slavery and mistreatment, and then God incited escape and return. And so the big question then of, uh, is really why, or why is the story in the Bible, uh, which is, again, a great question to always ask any text you're looking at, Old or a New Testament, any genre, but um, we'll look at narrative today as we have been. Why is the story in the Bible, essentially, just to kind of give you the, I think the broad answer here, there's more things to say, but we'll unpack this answer for the rest of our time together. 
And the answer is to tell us about salvation. It's here to tell us something of God's character in the matter, with a heavy emphasis on the idea of returning to God. And so what I want to do today is, is talk about this idea. We're going to really, and I usually do this uh, anyway on a weekly basis, but really give you guys a wide-angled view of what's going on here, uh, and, and not, not just look at the passage, but to kind of widen out and look at this thematically. Uh, because as I was saying earlier, this, this kind of story comes up over and over and over again in the Old Testament, and ultimately spiritually in the New. So if you understand this story and what it means theologically, you'll understand a lot about the Bible and a lot about strange stories in the Bible as well. Stories like this that maybe at face value seem irrelevant or a little bit distanced, but theologically say so much to us about God and, and what it means to be saved. They speak to our story, as I was uh, saying before. So I'm going to call this the return motif, uh, the return theme uh, in the Bible. I'm explaining this big picture and then I want to go into how it relates to this story today a little bit, and other stories too that resemble it uh, in, in the Bible, and then tied into Christ in our story at, at the end. So first, uh, the return motif in the Bible. So backing up a little bit, just have three quick things here. After Adam and Eve, the first human beings, and kind of all of humanity with them, are exiled from the garden of God's presence, uh, which is called uh, Eden, God identifies a land and calls people to it. So I, I called that Canaan, the Bible calls that Canaan, I mentioned that before. Uh, it later is just known as the land of rest, or the promised land. You might be more familiar with that phrase. Uh, it's the same land. Uh, Canaan and the Canaanites were people who were formerly there, and kind of still are at this point in the story, but God is in process of driving them out for a number of reasons, primarily because of their sin, but that's going to occur later. But they're still there, sojourning, the family of God. And then the rest of the Old Testament then kind of building off of this, this is where it starts. The rest of the Old Testament is a bunch of kind of mini exiles, mini expulsions from this land and mini returns to it. And I say mini because they're not ultimate. They might seem big. Uh, some of them are a lot bigger. Some of them have to do with individuals. Some of the returns and exiles have to do with families. And some of them have to do with entire nations. But the, the story of the Old Testament is kind of that, bouncing out of the land because of their sin or because of famine, and then uh, heading back into the land as God so enables it. Uh, and remember, that land is symbolic of God's presence. If we, if we know that, it uh, makes a lot more sense in terms of what's going on here spiritually and symbolically. So in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of where we see that uh, play out throughout the whole, really, rest of the Old Testament, we have Abraham traveling from Ur, I mentioned that, Abraham returns from Egypt due to a famine earlier in Genesis. Rebekah travels from Haran uh, to marry Isaac. Jacob, this is today's story, returns from Haran back to the land after leaving uh, earlier. Jacob's family returns from Egypt. This is what we call the Exodus. It's going to be hinted at later in Genesis, but it's mostly recounted in the book of Exodus after Genesis. Uh, Ruth and Naomi are also exiled because of famine uh, in Moab, but they return Israel much later in the story, after being exiled to Babylon, uh, this is kind of the bigger, grandiose return before Christ comes into the world. A lot going on there, too, uh, but uh, that's kind of how the Old Testament ends. Uh, he, so basically then, map-wise, again, Canaan's here. Whether people are going here and returning, or way back here and returning, or into Moab and returning, you constantly have just things like this happening all throughout the Old Testament. Exile, return, exile, return, exile, return, exile, return, over and over and over again. And this is just one of them. 
But then amidst all of that, we approach the New Testament. Jesus talks about it in these terms as well. He talks about salvation being like a prodigal son returning home. And then amidst all of that, God says in the prophets, and I'm alluding to Isaiah 44 here and also Jesus' words in John 14, he says, return to me, sinners who are far off. As all these stories are happening, as this repetitious cycle of exile, return, exile, return, famine, return, sin, return, idolatry, return, over and over and over and over again to this land, God says, return to me. I have blotted your sins out. And Jesus says in the Gospels, I am the way back. God is way over there, and you are way over here because of your sin. I am returning you to him. I get you back. And Christ is your, your ultimate inheritance. The, Christ is the ultimate rest or land of blessing. He's the ultimate place of God. That's why he calls himself the temple of God in John 2. The temple was this ultimate dwelling place of God in the Old Testament. That comes later in the story. So for Jesus to say, I am the true temple, is to say I'm the true, the true presence of God on earth. It's not centralized geographically anymore. It's not in a building anymore. It never really was. It's in a person. So come to me, and you come back to the land. And what this is whispering, and we're going to keep reading here and looking at this today, what Genesis 31, among all these other stories in point two, are whispering, I have come to fulfill. I have come to bring weak and wounded, famine-ridden, sin-laden, distant-from-me people back to me, back to where I am, close to me. That's the whole story of the Bible. If you know that, you can understand these smaller, messy narratives because it's exactly what's going on here in this story, uh, just on uh, a special kind of level. So the return motif here on the bottom, the return motif was always about returning to God, always about returning to a new Eden through Jesus Christ, our way back, our deliverer and, and our savior. So to look at this a little bit more precisely then, uh, the, the main plot line in return narratives, and not just this one, I, I want to walk through this, two points really, and I'll walk through today's passage a little bit to give you some points as to where this comes up in Genesis 30 and 31. But if you know the rest of the Old Testament, you might, as I'm reading this, and maybe you already did, but you might think, that sounds a lot like this return narrative, or this one, or what we said earlier with, with Abraham and how he was in Egypt and came back uh, from from Egypt to Canaan. And so if, if, if you're making those connections, you're exactly right. A lot of the words are repeated, a lot of the themes are repeated, and that is, uh, that is intentional. So the main plot line in return narratives are, are basically two things. The first one is the people of God are in trouble or they're oppressed by someone from uh, another land. And so here today, in today's story, we have Laban taking advantage of Jacob. Things start off good, remember. Things shift and Laban starts to enslave Jacob. He keeps him against his will. He keeps him longer than he wants to stay. He changes his wage unfairly. He steals from him. He assigns him to heavy labor. And he doesn't want to let him go. It's kind of like a guy who thinks, this is, life's pretty great. I got my son-in-law here. I don't have to lift as much as I used to. I'm getting older. I'm just going to try to tweak things here a bit so I can kind of trick him into manipulate him into staying and and as he says jacob says i've been here 20 years 20 years jacob is at the end of the story he voices this and, and he's very upset 
with Laban uh, due to these things. So we see kind of through his emotion as well how bad things really were uh, for him. So that's a big part, that kind of the f- on the front side of the story. All kinds of return narratives like this, but we have it here as well. Laban taking advantage of oppressing Jacob and his daughters and their kids, but mostly Jacob. And the second thing is, in terms of the main plot lines here, is that God sees his oppressed people. He intervenes many times miraculously to interrupt the trouble and oppression and to lead his people out of that foreign land back to himself. So one of the key, key things you see here earlier, and I started this way with verse 11, is it says, God says to, to Jacob, I have seen you. I've seen what Laban is doing to you. That's a huge thing God says, and I want you to try to remember that, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. But even here, before we even talk about that, it's pretty amazing, right? God's character in that. I've seen what's happening to you. God is a God who looks at you when you're in trouble, and he says this to you. And he says this to us as well. We can affirm this in our lives. We are the people of God, the church. He looks at us, and he says, I've seen you in your despair. This is not a God who's oblivious. This is not a careless picture of, of God. This is not a God who's just bored with what he's made. This is not a hateful picture of God. Evil people don't do this. This is a God who cares, who is good, who's involved, who sees us and does more than see. He comes to our rescue. But that's how the passage started is, I've seen, Jacob, what Laban is doing to you. And there's a big therefore. Therefore, get up, go, leave. I'm calling you back to my land where I am. You've done enough. Come back to me. I'm saving you. And so in terms of the miraculous here, you don't always see this in all, in all the return narratives that I mentioned and alluded to earlier, but there are some miraculous things here, like uh, the biggest one is when God gives Laban a dream, warning him not to, re- not to harm Jacob, and we, we didn't read this part, but there's a part with sheep too where he stole sheep away from Jacob's family deceitfully, but then God gives sheep back uh, kind of miraculously to Jacob's flock. Would have been a huge deal on that day. It was their livelihood. It was their work. It was really their, their fortune. And so he gave wealth for the present, but then to kind of provide for them on the way back as well uh, to, to Canaan. So God is kind of suppressing the evil. He's actually speaking to the antagonist, saying, this is my person. This is my people. Don't speak to them, either good or bad. It, it's fascinating that God speaks to the bad guy here and protects uh, via, uh, via kind of dream intervention there. So on two levels, we see that, how there's dreams and how there's provision of sheep and miraculous things happening there. And then he eventually leads them away safely. And I summarized at the end, but even though Laban, uh, Jacob says, hotly pursued him, and this is a, actually a theme we see elsewhere, like in the Exodus as well, but after the, the people of God are being pursued, uh, God sets up kind of a wall of protection in between them, and they make a covenant, and they kind of set up these rocks, and then they, they shake hands, they, they work it out, Laban goes home. But the point is, God still protects. Laban says, it's in my power to harm you. It's kind of a threat. But he says, but God spoke to me in a dream. So God's intervening to protect from harm here as well, even after they escape in, in the first place. And so it's really these two things in the story. And I'm boiling this down for simplicity, 
but the people of God are in trouble or oppressed by someone from another nation or land, then God sees those people in trouble. He intervenes for those people in trouble, many times accompanying miracles uh, to interrupt that trouble and oppression and to lead his people out of that foreign land and back to himself. So really those two things. And uh, maybe you guys, uh, as I was reading this, if you know the story of the Exodus, it's a lot of parallels to the Exodus story here as well, and some of which I even left out just for the sake of time. But if, if you don't know that story, read the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, which is right after Genesis, and look for those parallels. It's a bigger event. It's not just a family. It's a nation this time coming back from Egypt to the land. There's a Pharaoh character. Uh, there's oppression. There's heavy labor. There's people crying out. There's God saying, I see you. And he comes to their rescue. Uh, there, there's a story of Pharaoh hotly pursuing them and overtaking them after they leave, but God setting up a, a, a wall of his presence in between them and leading them out, of, out through the sea. There's a lot of similarities, and they're intentional. They're different stories, but they're kind of the same story to show that this is what God is doing with sinners. This is how he's saving people. This is what he's doing in the world. He's seen people in trouble, and he's coming to rescue over and over and over and over again. It's a, it's a wonderful picture of God, too. These aren't bad things, right? These aren't even neutral things. These are amazing, amazing characteristics of the God who made everything in the universe in you. And though you and I rebelled against him, he still has this posture towards us. It's incredible, incredible grace. So maybe you saw some parallels with other stories, but what I want to kind of fast forward us ahead here to is to see the ultimate point, and I've already hinted at it, even said it. The ultimate point is Christ. As it always is in the scriptures, the ultimate point is Jesus and his story kind of being embedded and foreshadowed beautifully, and, and the church's story embedded beautifully in, uh, in this narrative. And just want to walk through this. What, what I mean is this. To pull off these plot points here, the ultimate story being, uh, being the churches is that we too are in trouble and in slavery. The Bible makes this very clear. Uh, Jesus does actually in John 8. Jesus says, and he answered the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices a sin is a slave to sin. It's extremely bad news. Everyone who practices a sin, which is everybody, is actually, they haven't just done something wrong, they're enslaved to it. They're under oppression. They can't get out. And so Jesus actually speaks this uh, to people who misunderstand the true nature of slavery. They think it's physical, and they're thinking, we're not enslaved to, everybody, to anybody. What are you talking about? We're free. And Jesus says, no, you actually are. You're enslaved right here. Again, it's a huge biblical theological theme. Physical slavery that gives a picture of slavery going on right here. And when Jesus gets on the scene, he points here all the more. Whether you're physically enslaved by people or not isn't so much the point anymore. What he really cares about is this slavery, slavery going on right here. Sin slavery. And this idea isn't pulled out of thin air. Remember, all these words are kind of draped with Old Testament imagery. Uh, Jacob was a slave. Israel was a slave in Egypt. Israel was enslaved to other nations all throughout their history. And so for Jesus to come on the scene and kind of redefine a bit and to, and to tweak would have been probably hard to understand a little bit by people. But not if they understood what the problem was always of, the script, of well, their story, but the biblical storyline is sin. Sin. 
rebellion against God, going our own way, worshiping the self, abandoning our Creator. And so uh, that's the main thing. So we too are in trouble, and we too are in slavery. Moving on, we too are saved by a God who sees us in our distress, how sin and Satan are oppressing us and not letting us go. And then he intervenes. Matthew 9, 36, just a beautiful, again, the, the characteristics of Jesus here are incredible. See this, it says, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that is a, um, especially culturally, some of you guys are, um, <laughs> I was going to say sheep herders yourselves, it's not true. Sheep farmers, I guess, I guess we, we know some, but anyway. Um, so you know this, but a lot of us, and this is a cultural deal, uh, to, say, to say sheep without a shepherd is a pretty damning uh, kind of indictment. It's, um, it's hopeless. He actually says this. He says that they were harassed and they had actually no help at all. They, they were helpless. Sheep without a shepherd is basically good to no one. They have no hope. To be a sheep without a shepherd is to be on borrowed time. You're basically dead. So when Jesus is saying these things, it's not just he's saying, I see them, and then he does something else. He saw them, and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Again, the fact that God is like this, that he is like this to us in this very room, that through his Son, he exemplifies this type of characteristic that we see whispered back in Genesis 31 when God saw Laban and had compassion on him. He wanted to end the slavery and oppression. This continues through Christ just on heightened uh, levels. We too have a God whose salvation is accompanied by miracles. Mark 1 says he traveled, this is early on in his ministry, Jesus traveled through Galilee, the, this northern area above Jerusalem, preaching in their synagogues, and also driving out demons. The, the idea here, too, in the story of, you know, it's an odd inclusion. I was telling Peter again this morning, it was like, it, it's the inclusion of Rebecca having stolen her father's household gods, put them under a camel saddle, sat on them, and then feigned a period so she wouldn't have to get up off the camel and hide them and then lied to her, to her husband. It's like, what in the world is that doing in the Bible? Is it really necessary to have in there? You know, amidst all this kind of greater idea of returning from a foreign land, returning from slavery, kind of the higher points here. Is that really, really important? If you include the idea in, in, the, in the process of the people of God coming back to God and God granting salvation, coming to our rescue, it actually fits quite well. Not a one-to-one -one with demons, but... There's a clear victory, narratively back in Genesis 31 first, a clear victory over false gods. These carved images of stone that someone used to worship that now are being sat on by this woman, hidden, and apparently can't speak up and help themselves out from underneath her. They're just kind of lying there, you know? Impotent! Lazy! Mute! Powerless! Next to the God who actually actually rescues his people see that the, the juxtaposition false gods are being sat on overcome defiled really here um, by jacob and 
well, specifically Rachel, but by Jacob's family kind of as a whole. They're mute. And so to see then Jesus kind of pick up on this theme, and if you guys know how he drives out demons, this isn't a wrestling match where there's kind of a question of, ooh, you know, not quite sure who's going to, you know, win there. It's Jesus speaks, and they always listen. He commands them out, and they always go. He exudes authority. He doesn't wrestle. He says, I am the Son of God. Leave. Be silent. Come out of him. Leave her. And they always listen. And, and the demons are strangely mute, just obviously powerless, and they flee uh, before, before his presence. And so the salvation of God then, as returns are happening, are always accompanied by miracles. But the, the key, one of the key words here is accompanied, and I'll come back to this in a little bit, but they're accompanied by miracles, but they're ultimately wrapped up with deliverance and return from, to God from sin and death. Like Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in Mark 10, I came to give my life as a ransom for many, to lay it down. I'm giving my life. That's his ultimate mission. Demonic deliverance is not the ultimate thing he came to do. That accompanied, that always happens for the people of God. He always exercises evil from our hearts, and we believe the gospel. But the way he did that, his ultimate mission was to die on a cross among criminals, to kind of become like one of them because we were, to die in our place substitutionarily, and to ransom us back, to buy us back from, from sin and death. That's the ultimate salvation. And in that salvation, he frees us from the heavy burden, the heavy burdensome labor of the law. Kind of like Jacob was freed from burdensome labor and Israel was freed from burdensome labor before the exodus happens later in the biblical story, if, you, if you're aware of that. John 1.17 says, this is a clear distinction thing, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 11 Come, Jesus speaking, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. Or Paul in Romans something something, I forget the reference. It, you're no longer under law, you're under grace. Therefore, you're no longer slaves. You're free. You're free. So law and grace are not blended biblically, they stand opposed. The law was given through Moses. The Ten Commandments, the do this or else statements, are given through Moses. But now grace and truth, a new era, has come through Christ. And so he saves you by grace. He saves you by love. He saves you by doing all the heavy lifting. And so he saves you away from the heavy labor. That's clear here in Matthew 11 and, and also John 1. And, and when Paul writes this way in his letters of the New Testament, it's clear we've been moved away from labor to a place of rest. And keeping laws are always burdensome. This is one of the biggest themes of the Old Testament to see how Israel failed, how they couldn't keep it. It's a, it's a heavy burden to keep the law. And, and Jesus takes that yoke off of our neck, leads us beside still waters into green pastures, and he does that through his death. There's a change there, a shift. Just like we're seeing from Jacob heading back to a land of freedom, that's what we get with Christ as well. And then lastly, returning us to God. Isaiah 44, 22, God says clearly, uh, I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. 
You see again how, how the prophets are so helpful here, this part of the Old Testament, because they make it very clear what the point of return really is. It was never really that land. It was always to him. The land was just a picture. That's why you and I are not hopping on a plane right now to go to Israel to worship. That's why we don't really think about that. Because kind of instinctually we know the point is Jesus, not land anymore. And actually for, for Jesus in Matthew 11, to go back for a second, on the bottom to say rest, rest was an idiom or really synonymous for land in the Old Testament. So when God called his people to land, he says, I'm giving you rest there. A land of rest, it was called. And so for Jesus to say, come to me now and you'll get rest, is to say, I am that new land. I am what it was pointing to. I am the land of God's blessing. The, the, the way you're saved now is to come to me and to, to take on my yoke, which is not burdensome, which is easy. It's a, it's a gospel-freeing thing. It's just the fact that you're loved by God and you've been fought for, pursued, seen in your affliction, rescued, pulled out of sin and death through the man on the cross and through his, his resurrection. So what, what you see here then is that idea, God has always wanted this, and I, I think if we understand this, this beautifully repetitious, I think almost kind of painful, I think it's not that big a deal to see, you got to be careful with that, but to, to feel the painfully repetitious nature of some of these stories, uh, but it's beautiful, painfully but beautifully repetitious theme in the Bible, returning to God from sin, or just returning to the land, if you see that over and over and over again, you get the gospel, that's really what it is. It's not rocket science. We are not with God because we've sinned. God goes to get us, and he brings us back. The Old Testament is thicker than the New Testament. There's longer stories that kind of cater to this. It's, and it's conf these stories, without Christ, they remain veiled and foggy. They're confusing. Uh, but he grants that clarity to them when he speaks in return terms. When he speaks in I see you terms, when he, when he defiles demons, when he speaks about laying down his life, when he speaks about compassion, when he speaks about freeing us from burden, from a burdensome labor of the law, all of that grants that clarity. So a, a few truths to leave us with. I um, want to focus on a few kind of, kind of bunny trailish things, but things I think that relate. Um, and summarize. First is, God loves returns, and that's why we do as well. You know, I was thinking this week, I, I think that this is why human beings, we like re returning from things. I think it speaks to the human experience quite well. A lot of times, theology will do that. It, it'll help explain in a, in a way that philosophy can't, or human reasoning can't, Theology will explain why your life looks the way it does. It's one of the reasons why I'm a Christian, because I, I feel like early on in my life, I felt like it expl this explained my world better than anything else. It explained why I was the way I was, why I liked the things I liked, why I didn't like the things I didn't like, why the world turned the way it did, why the sun rose and set every day, why we have seasons, why we have an, an animal kingdom. I mean, all these things might seem kind of peripheral, but they actually all somehow speak the reality that God sets out in, in the scriptures. But returning is one of those things. Elise and I, probably every time we come back from vacation, we always say, that was fun, but I'm so glad to be home. 
right? I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't say that? I hear that all the time. You know, it's like it's water cooler talk, right? You know, it's like, oh, how was your trip? Yeah, it was good, but so good to be back. Like every time, right? Every time. Or, or better yet, a work trip. You know, coming back, I mean, people were turning joyfully from wherever with a sigh of relief uh, is the human experience. Uh, you know, home sweet home is a thing for a reason. And if we ask why, I think, you know, philosophically, it's kind of hard to answer. There might be some answers philosophically there, but I think theologically, the answer is because God likes returns, clearly. And we are in his image. And so you are, even if you're not a Christian, you are going to be kind of swayed towards things that matter to God a little bit because you are unavoidably created in the image of God himself. And he unchangeably loves returning people from distant lands. He just loves it. So when you do it, chances are, it's going to feel kind of good. Maybe not every time. Maybe not as much as your friend or your dad or sister, whoever, liked it better coming home. But chances are, that's going to be a part of your, your experience. He has put eternity into our hearts, as Ecclesiastes 3 says. And, and in a way, I think it's what, you know, how he might be starting to speak to some of you about grace. Some of you might not be Christians yet, but you like to return from vacations or from work trips, and that theme speaks to it. You, you like that because you were wired to be saved. You were wired to return from sin, to return from your old way of living, to return from something less ideal where your home isn't, to come back to what truly matters, and that is to be with your creator again, to stop worshiping yourself, to stop being the center of your universe and to come to a place where it doesn't have to be the case anymore. It's part of the gospel. It's very freeing. Oh, it doesn't have to be about me. It's actually a huge sigh of relief. And so salvation then is just like that. It's kind of like returning home from a really hard work trip. It's a good thing because coming home to God is a good thing when we fully and truly rest from our labors. The second thing here is God wants us to return to him and to not miss the obvious here. Um, what I mean by that is the question, have we really... Have you really, have I really, this is what I think the scriptures confront us with here in a good way, have you really returned to God? Just gut check time, Christian or not. Have we heard his voice say, I see you, and, and, and have we heard his voice call us from the tombs through Jesus Christ, and have we believed the gospel? In other words, it, it's possible to be a very good person and not return to God. Very important to understand this. It's possible to be really good and not return to God through Jesus Christ. Those are different things. The morality might be good, but it might be bad because it doesn't get you here to God. It keeps you from looking for a rescue. It happens all, all the stinking time. In and outside of the church, we, we confuse the gospel for goodness, human goodness and we actually don't ever return to God through Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus interacted with a number of these people in his ministry to help make that point, to undergird that idea. Really good people that didn't, didn't quite see their need to return to God because they were something when in fact they were nothing. And Jesus tries to lead them, all of us, some of us take that 
long road up the Fertile Crescent, you know, along the Euphrates, down on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, spiritually speaking, into, the, into Canaan. We take that long road through Christ, and some, some don't. The, the scary thing is, they're really good people, but they're not saved. Because they haven't gone back to God through Jesus. They've tried to go through their own works. The call here in Genesis is return to the land of your kindred. Not work harder for Laban or not work harder at all. Walk away from your work and come back to me. That's exactly what's going on here in this story. And that's exactly what it means to be saved. Walk away from your work. Walk away from the charade. Walk away from moralism and pursue God, and he will make you good. Basking in his love for you will free you from this tireless charade of trying to do enough on your own, and you'll simply love people because you've been deeply loved yourself as a byproduct. This is what the, the, the gospel is, the New Testament teaches. So remember that. Even the story, the miracles that God did and the actual call back to the land are di qualitatively different things. The miracles and the call back to the land are different things. Miracles and teachings, like of Jesus in the New Testament, are good. But the, the main thing, the trajectory of the story, is the call to return to God. That's what salvation has to do, a full-blown return to God, which he makes possible. Where he calls us away from our oppressor's sin by grace and dies in our place. And that's what the, the, the so deliverances are greater than miracles. And that's the third thing here is God is the active party and, and this is the good news because that former thing can seem kind of, well, it's great, but how do I get back? And is that on me? It's not. God is the active party in return narratives. You know, we, we can affirm here and I, I want you to, um, this is what we should always do when we look at the Bible is who is God? How have I not seen this before? How have I, but have I forgotten? This is true for you today. God is not partial. He does not change. What he said to Jacob, he says to you in this very room right now and to me. I see you in your sin. I see you underneath that oppression. I see you in slavery. I see you distant from me. And I've come to rescue you. But notice, he's the main return agent here. He's stifling Laban's ill motives. He's speaking to Jacob. He's defiling false gods. He's destroying what we normally used to worship. In the same way, God stifles your sin through his son. He came all your way, all my way, all of our way to save us. And so when God calls us then to return, when he says, I have blot the reason why we can go back is because of what Jesus did right there. I have blotted out your transgressions. How did he do that? By becoming a human being and dying for us in our place. I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Therefore, return to me. Because of that, return to me. For I have redeemed you. That's buying back from slavery talk in the Old Testament. When redemption was talked about, it was you can redeem slaves. It talked about this in the book of Exodus. One of the first laws that God gives to Israel is redemption law. Buying back slaves. Same theme. Jacob's bought from slavery. You and I are bought from slavery when we believe in this man. Bought from slavery to sin. 
and were returned to him like Jacob was returned to the land. All these things are the same story. They're all connected. And this is where they head. Believe in him and return to him. Don't be a good person because then you won't see your need for him. Those are different things. Come to him. Return to God through Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be saved. Believe the gospel. No matter what you've done, no matter how big your sin is, believe the gospel. Know he's come to you. He's not in heaven waiting for you. He came to earth to rescue you and to bring you home. Believe, believe, believe that gospel and enter into heavenly rest through faith today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your, your gospel. Thank you that it's um, kind of hidden but so rich in this story. Uh, we thank you that you are a God who over and over again, and I think you do this to show us that it's not an aberration that you save people from foreign lands and from being under heavy labor and slavery. If you did it once, maybe we could try to almost conclude that in our minds, but you do it over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible, and in a final sense, through your son. Never to do it again, because the, Christ was the final manifestation of God rescuing people enslaved to sin. So we thank you that you've come our way. Uh, God, help us to believe, to hear that call. You're calling to, that, you're calling to us right now in this room through Isaiah 44. Return to me, for I've blotted your sins out like a mist. I have thwarted the Labans out of your life. I've spoke to them. They will, no long, they will never touch you again. I've freed you. Uh, so help us to heed that call and to believe the gospel, to believe Jesus is the only way back uh, into the rest of God. And uh, so help us to worship and to leave here encouraged in that gospel truth today. In your name, we pray. Amen.